What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. holidays and welcome back to a very special holiday edition of the bill press pod you know one impact of this pandemic we're spending a lot more time at home and consequently a lot more time in the kitchen revisiting a lot of our favorite recipes and looking for a lot of new ones and now just in time as a lifesaver comes along a new cookbook from my absolute favorite home cook Ina Garten known affectionately, of course, as the Barefoot Contessa. As a very amateur cook, still kind of afraid of the kitchen, there are two things I love about Ina's recipes. One, whether meat, fish, vegetables, or pasta, they're so unfailingly good and delicious. Two, to borrow the title from one of her best books, they are foolproof. Follow the recipe and you can't go wrong. Ina's new book, her 15th, by the way, is Modern Comfort Food, with some great new recipes like skillet roasted chicken and potatoes, which I highly recommend, and variations on some old favorites like her ultimate beef stew, unbelievably good. So just before the holidays, I had the great pleasure of interviewing Ina Garten for a Talk of the Hill event at Washington's Great Hill Center. Enjoy our conversation and then run out to your local bookstore for a copy of Modern Comfort Food. It's certainly a long way from the Office of Management and Budget in the White House for President Ford, President Carter, to being one of the most popular and successful chefs in the United States with so many cookbooks. Thank you. Well, not a chef, kind of a home cook. How, how did you... Did, did that start in Washington or how did you get started? What was that transition? Well, you know, when I first I got married when I was 20 and Jeffrey was in the military and I just decided that I wanted to teach myself how to cook. So we, um, we had just come back from a camping trip in uh, Europe, which was in Paris and London and Scotland and um, Provence. And I just got I got a taste of the. Um, of great ingredients from the markets. And we lived on $5 a day, which sounds impossible, but it was pretty crazy even then, including the camping fee. Remember that book? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm so glad. So, I mean, the, you know, the camping fee was like $1.50. So we only had $3.50 left to, to, um, to, to live on, including gas, to go to the next place. <laughs> so I just got a sense of um, what European food was like, and I came back to Washington. Jeffrey was um, at Johns Hopkins and then later at the State Department. And I, I bought Julia Child's Mastering the Art of French Cooking and really taught myself how to cook with those two books. And it was a great education. And so I would work, work during the day, and I would um, come home and cook at night. And on the weekends, I'd have dinner parties. So <laughs> that, was, that was all I knew about cooking. <laughs> I thought, well, well, then I'll open a specialty food store. Like, <laughs> it's one thing to make 12 brownies, and it's another thing to make 
a thousand brownies for um, in a specialty food store. But I, I figured it out. So when you get to number 12, um, why come? Food. Oh, well, actually, um, it was, I mean, it was pretty, pretty good timing, wouldn't you say? It's like what we need now. But two years ago, when I started this book, there's a kind of a two year cycle. I, um, I thought, well, what's going to be happening in October of 2020? Um, that, and what would people want? And I realized there was going to be an election a month later. And so I just decided I would write something about comfort food. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just do modern comfort food, you know, kind of freshen things up and make them simpler. Because mm -hmm. a lot of comfort food is like beef stew that cooks forever. And it's not that good. And I thought I could really revisit that. So that was the original idea of it. But I mean, who knew there was going to be an international pandemic and issues with racial justice in the Supreme Court and, you know, everything else that's going on in our lives. It's just crazy. Have you found that um, one uh, side effect, if you will, of this pandemic is uh, more interest in home cooking? A hundred percent. I think people, I have friends who literally have never cooked before and they've just decided they're going to get groceries delivered and they're going to figure out how to do it. So uh, there's, I mean, first of all, people are at home all the time and, um, and so they want, you know, they and they have time. So they're, they're, you know, people that used to spend hours commuting are now home. So everybody's cooking. So, it, I mean, the timing was really great, but I'm also really happy that I was able to give people like recipes that would make them feel good, you know, because we're all so anxious and we're all so sad about not seeing our friends and we're not in the same place. It's different. I think we all need comfort food. <laughs> we all need the, all the comforting we can. And I love to cook for people. So I love making wonderful things for Jeffrey that make him feel good. So uh, I want to just, I, I mentioned I'm a big fan. Carol's the cook. Yeah. I like to play at it uh, once in a while. Yeah. Okay. So some of our favorites, I just want to mention them to you, um, whether you have any stories to tell about them. Uh, the penne with vodka. That actually, yeah. I've made it so many times. Friends have made it now and it's their Thing There's a wonderful do. restaurant in East Hampton called Nick and Tony's. And it, when they opened, it was based on um, a restaurant. I can't think of the name right now, but in Rome that they, they uh, the, the husband and wife who started it just loved. And they made this penne alla vodka. And it went on the menu when they first opened, has to be 30 years ago. Uh, I think it was in like 1985 maybe, I don't know, maybe somewhere between 85 and 90. And it's the, I think it's the only thing that's still on the menu. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> wants it off. So they, they shared the re recipe with me. Um, Sicilian swordfish with the arugula on top. Uh, oh yeah. I love that one with the capers yeah. and yeah, it's got great flavor and it's just, um, swordfish is sometimes overcooked and it's just perfectly cooked with the sauce on it. And, and the peppery arugula is good with it. Uh, growing up uh, as a kid in Delaware, uh, one thing that brings me back home is your stuffed cabbage recipe. <laughs> is that right? That's great. Oh, God, I love it. Make it and freeze it and it's good forever. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, we used to make that in the store. That was um, always during the holidays we would make that. So where do you 
Where do you find your recipes? I mean, the ideas for them, you know, it just, it comes from everywhere. I love, I mean, I must have a thousand cookbooks. I love reading cookbooks. I love reading, you know, the New York Times, New York Times cooking um, section there, you know, they do a great app. Um, but I also, you know, I go to restaurants and there's a restaurant in, in New York called Lilia that has incredible flavorful, simple, kind of really what I would consider home cooking because it's not fancy. It's just really good. Um, so I will go there and let, there's a cacio e pepe um, cheese puffs in, in this book that was kind of inspired by something that they do there. Um, I mean, the ideas come from everywhere. The, the first book, actually, I remember being in Milan and I was trying to figure out what the design of the book would be. And um, the, the colors in Milan at that time must have been 1990 eight when when I was designing that first book and the colors were all these kind of jarring colors like raspberry and orange together and lime green and royal blue together and I just I came back and I thought oh that's what I want the book to look like so I think if you you can't really figure stuff out when you're sitting home alone. You have to go out there and see what people are doing and say, well, that's a good idea and I want to put it together with something else. How many times do you have to test them before <laughs> they're ready to roll? Um, I would say probably the most I've ever tested something is about six or seven years, which was um, oh. the, <laughs> the um, Boston cream pie. I would all, I have. I start with something in my head that I'm looking for, some like the flavor, the texture, exactly what I'm looking for, and I just keep going till I get there. And every once in a while, I go, "Okay, I'm done. I've done enough now. I put it away." And a year later, I'll take it out and say, I, "You know, I have another idea that might solve that problem." So that was the longest. But I'd say most recipes, I certainly test ten times, maybe fifteen times. But then that's just the beginning. Then what I do is I have three assistants. And eat, one is a, a good home cook, one's a very good home cook, and one's been cooking with me for 20 years. So they have different levels of, of you know, um, of skills. So I give them each this the recipe that I'm working on, but just the printed page, the way you would get it at home. And I watch them make it. And when somebody, you know, one, one of them goes, hmm, I go, just stop. I want to know what question you have because I want to answer it in the, in, in the recipe. So when somebody else gets there, they're not wondering whether it's cloves of garlic or dried cloves. They know exactly right. what it is. You mentioned um, Julia Childs and, the, and Simone Beck yeah. and the, the French cooking. I've been there. Um, that that would scare me the hell out of the kitchen. Is your it was your goal with, with your books to make it? I wouldn't say I don't. I don't. I, if I say simple, I mean it in the best possible no, I, way. I, 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 I admire simplicity. What I admire yeah. is um, something where you take good ingredients and you cook as little as possible to make them taste as good as they can possibly taste. So it's not about 12 different layers of flavor. It's about um, bringing out the intrinsic flavor of what you're cooking with. So I, I really, I think the simplest things are the most elegant. So simplicity and, and style kind of go together for me. So I take simplicity, that, that they're simple as a compliment. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> so make us all feel better. Have you, you mentioned dinner parties. Have you ever had like a dinner party where it was a real disaster? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wasn't everybody? <laughs> Fortunately, it was my first one, and I learned from it. When when Jeffrey was in the military, he was um he was he was at stationed at Fort Bragg. He was a Green Beret and a paratrooper. I mean, he kind of did everything. He was amazing, and um, we we had 
some friends, you know, we had maybe new 20 people. And I thought, I'm just going to invite them all for brunch when, you know, at a time when people used to have brunch. And, um, and I thought, well, what was I going to make for brunch? That would be really fun. I thought I'll make an omelet for everybody. So first of all, 20 people is a terrible number for a party because you're, you know, it's nobody knows everybody else. And it's, it, it's either small or huge, but 20 is a bad number. And, um, and I was in the kitchen the entire time making one omelet for each person. <laughs> I think it took me like a year to have a party after that. I was so, so like <laughs> freaked out by it. But um, what, what I learned from that though, is that you want to be at the party and having fun with your friends. If you're stressed out, then your friends aren't going to have fun because they feel badly that you're stressed out. You, you want them to feel like, oh, I just whipped this up in the few minutes before you got here, even though everybody knows that that's not the way it happens. But um, I learned a lot from that bad party. I, I don't think I've had a bad one since. <laughs> the new comfort food, uh, modern comfort food, uh, some wonderful, I haven't been all the way through it yet, but working my way through it. Oh, some thank wonderful you. That's a piece there. Um, my favorite so far, I think, is the skillet roasted chicken and potatoes. Yeah. Where did the idea come from of soaking the chicken in buttermilk over for four or five hours well, or overnight? Buttermilk is a great thing when you're making fried chicken. Soaking it in buttermilk actually tenderizes the chicken and it moisture. You know, it brings moisture to it. So the the key is you don't want to do it for too long because then it actually breaks down the chicken. But I thought if you can if you can soak it in buttermilk for um, fried chicken, let's try it for something else. And it really it really worked. Did you make that? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. No. And um, so the raspberry muffins I've made a, a few times. For sure. <laughs> Actually, there are certain certain flavors that come go through my books. And in my first book, we used to make at the store um, big these huge corn muffins that that we would pipe with raspberry jam. And I love the combination of the sweet raspberries with the, the kind of like um, cornmeal, like really savory cornmeal flavor. And so I have a few things like that. And the, um, I, I thought I'd make, people always want to know if they can make mini muffins. So I decided I would put fresh raspberries into it and see how it worked out. But it worked out pretty well. It works out great. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you have on the stove? This is the ultimate beef. Oh, how great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and um, we haven't, I, I made it earlier, yeah. right? And we're waiting until we're finished here. Oh, good. Why ultimate beef stew? Well, I, I just, you know, beef stew is beef stew. You know, as when we were kids, somebody always made beef stew or, you know, it came out of a can. <laughs> but um, I just thought I, I really wanted to break down beef stew. I wanted to make something classic American beef stew, but that tasted delicious. And so I really kind of got into the recipe to say, well, how can I make the beef taste better? Because usually it's kind of boring and bland and overcooked. And so I, I substituted chuck, which you usually use for um, short ribs, which have a lot of flavor. And, um, and instead of searing it in the pan, I decided I would put it on a sheet pan, toss it with olive oil, salt and pepper, and sear it in the oven, which really works well, doesn't it? It's so much easier. And you don't end up with a mess in your kitchen. So, um, and then you can put all the juices and the, and the, um, uh, and the short ribs in the stew. And then I thought, well, how am I going to make the sauce taste better? And I remembered basically beef bourguignon is a French beef stew. So I decided to take the red wine and cognac that flavors the beef bourguignon and put that into the stew and, and still use potatoes, 
carrots and peas as an American beef stew would be. And so um, I think it came out really great. It's my idea of beef stew. The other vegetable you did mention, which I was a little surprised at, was fennel. Oh, fennel, fennel. yeah. I, Just for that I like, flavor? Yeah, it adds flavor. I like that kind of subtle, um, like, when, when, very often when I'm doing onions, I'll do onions and fennel together because they just have a little layering of flavors that make, make a big difference. And especially in a sauce, when, when you're cooking something with a sauce, it's really great. Do you serve it just in a bowl or do you serve it uh, over noodles or anything? Um, or you, can, you can serve it any way you like, but I tend to do is like a, um, a piece of crusty bread, like a toasted piece of bread, and then serve it on that, which is how mm. I usually serve beef bourguignon. But you could serve it with noodles or, or it's just a meal in itself. I mean, it's got everything you could want in a dinner. So you could solve a long-running, um, I would say, discussion, not argument. Okay. In the, Between you and in your wife? Time. Am I going to be on somebody's, somebody's one, list? One, <laughs> <laughs> if you know should my list? <laughs> What's the question? Should one follow the recipe exactly or not? <laughs> um, this is, I know which side of the um, equation each of you is on. <laughs> so, so this is what I think. I always like if somebody makes the recipes exactly the way it is the first time, and then they can adjust it if they like it in a different way. But my experience is that women tend to follow a recipe exactly, and men like to throw things in. Did I guess that right? <laughs> Oh, you got it backwards. I got it backwards. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm the anal one. I'm oh, good. I'm, I'm so glad. You know, I think that, you know, when I'm making a recipe and it's my own recipe, I measure everything exactly. Because I've just spent probably two or three weeks and maybe up to six years getting the flavors perfectly balanced so that they, um, they don't, one doesn't overpower the other one. And I don't know why I would start all over again by just throwing things in. So um, I, I, uh, if your wife doesn't mind my saying this, I'm with you. I measure everything. And then you know it's going to come out right. Well, I was heartened. I think it's in um, foolproof where you say the first time through, yeah. follow it exactly, and then you're on your own. And then you're basically. on your own. And you can add things and you can change things and, you know, that's fine. But at least you know the way it was intended to be. And, uh, you know, I always love people that they email me all the time and they go, well, I made your chocolate cake. I you know, and it didn't come out right. And it's, you, you're like, well, what did you, you know, how did you make the chocolate cake? And it turns out they didn't have chocolate at all. So they used like sardines wow. instead. <laughs> like, why, why is, why did you think the cake would come out that way? So it, just make it one time so you know the way it should be and then go for it. <laughs> Do you have any favorite national cuisine, French or Italian or? I tend pie? to love, I tend to love French. I love, you know what? I love country French. I like simple French food, not, um, I mean, in a way, uh, Julia Child, that's what Julia Child really did is a lot of, um, simple country French food, charcuterie things. And yeah. Is there a favorite, uh, American food city of yours? Um, um well, New York's pretty great. I have to say, <laughs> um, is there another favorite food city? Uh, I, I just, the thing about New York is everything is there. It's just extraordinary. And, and, and then there's one chef like Jean-Georges Van Gerichten who does all the cuisines. So, and they're, you know, they're just amazing. What's your favorite food city? Probably San Francisco. Oh yeah. Uh, New York is hard to beat really. Yeah. San Francisco is uh, pretty great though. But I've got to tell you, Washington's getting better it and better. It is. It is. Do you know, when I lived in Washington, right across from the Four Seasons Hotel, there was a, um, a specialty food store open. So this must have been in the 70s. And it was called Pasta Inc. 
and it was, um, they made fresh pasta and they made sauces and you could go in and buy pasta and sauces and people would come out and go, oh, I can't believe that pasta was $2 a pound. Who would spend $2 a pound for pasta? And I'd be like, it's dinner for two people. <laughs> it was crazy. So I think it took a little while for Washington to be willing to spend the money on good food. As we're sitting here, I'm, if I look up on our kitchen wall, there's a wonderful portrait of um, one of my heroes, MFK Fisher. Oh. Uh, is there any of either living or dead of American food writer or? Oh, there's so, I mean, there's so many. Oh, there's so, I mean, there's so many. Um, I, you know who I love is, um, he's not a chef, but he's a restaurateur, is Danny Meyer. I admire him so much because, because of the integrity of what he does and the, his sense of hospitality. He really, let me see if I can remember this. In his book, um, he wrote that when you walk into a restaurant, people want three things that, that, their, that their mothers gave them. They, they want somebody to look at you. They want somebody to smile at you and they want somebody to feed them. <laughs> and I thought it's such a, such an elemental part of being a restaurateur. And he started with one restaurant, he said, Union Square Cafe. He said, I will never have a restaurant that's, that I can't walk to so I can be part of it. And now he has restaurants all over the world and they're just as good because he really has, has taught that sense of hospitality to people everywhere through his organization. And I just admire him enormously. Now, I have a, a list of short questions, but I call them dumb questions, meaning... Dumb questions, okay. <laughs> I, I'll give a dumb answer. <laughs> My definition is a man would ask, right? So, uh, <laughs> like, for example... Well, it sounds like you know what you're doing. <laughs> you call for unsalted butter all the time. Does I do. it make any difference if you use salted butter? Um, it probably doesn't. The reason why I call for unsalted butter is two things. Salt is a preservative. So I, I tend to think that unsalted butter is going to be fresher because it has to turn over faster. But also each different kind of salt has a different amount of uh, salted butter has a different amount of salt in it. And mm -hmm. so the way that I control how much salt is in something, because I never say salt to taste, I always give a specific amount, is to start with unsalted butter. But if you, you know, you certainly can adjust for that. What's the big deal with kosher salt? Ah, kosher salt. This is a big subject. How much time do you have? <laughs> um, I, I follow you. I use it, but I just... You want to know why. Um, uh, regular table salt has something, um, some chemical in it to keep it free-flowing. And it gives it a, kind of a metallic taste. And it's, I find it kind of harsh. So I, kosher salt has bigger grains and they dissolve very easily. But um, it's a little softer. And actually, if you have table salt and kosher salt and you put them on the counter and you kind of taste each one, you'll never forget the difference. But the thing about kosher salt is there are different kinds of kosher salt. So I actually, for all the recipes, I use um, diamond, crystal, diamond crystal kosher salt. But you can also get um, like David's or other kinds of kosher salt that are actually saltier. So you have to be careful about which one you use. Right. Uh, heavy cream, half and half. Uh, is it just a matter of if you want to watch your cholesterol? Is that it? No, not really. Heavy, um, half and half is half milk and half cream. So it's a completely different thing. And as Julia Child said, when people say, I don't, I, um, that she's, people would say, well, I don't want to use butter. And she, she'd say, well, just use cream. <laughs> <laughs> um, so cream is a whole other thing. And, and it depends on the thing because 
if you're using heavy cream to make a sauce, you can boil it and it won't curdle. But if you use, decide that I want to save cholesterol and I'm going to use half and half, it'll, it'll be a mess. So it depends on how you're using it. If you're using it, you know, adding it to enrich a soup, it might be okay, but um, they're not interchangeable at all, even though they sound like they should be. And cilantro is just a no-no, is that? No, no, never. <laughs> but I, I actually think it's, it's genetic. I, I, what I taste, you wouldn't want to eat. And, and I just think it overpowers everything. I can actually tell when somebody at the next table is eating it. It's just so strong to me. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, but you can always we, add it. <laughs> we have uh, tons of questions coming in. Before we go to okay. the, um, I know among our audience tonight, there are some grandchildren, um, younger Americans watching. Younger, I, I know particularly one. As in your grandchildren? grandchildren? Exactly. Oh, good. <laughs> What's your message to, uh, to, to young kids who, you know, how, how, how early should they start in the kitchen? I think as early as they can hold a spoon. <laughs> I just, I think it's fun and it's really, it's a, a community thing. You all do it together and everybody helps out and you end up with something delicious. When people ask me, what should, what should I teach my children how to cook? I ask them, what do the children like to eat? And if you, if you like to eat it, you're going to learn how to make it because you, then you can eat it. So I think that's, um, Starting them out young is really wonderful. And I think that Food Network has been fantastic for that, particularly for boys. You know, there was a time when, you know, cooking was like girls' work. And then Bobby Flay and Emeril and, you know, just extraordinary uh, Michael Simon. Um, a lot of extraordinary men started cooking on Food Network. And then all of a sudden boys were cooking, which is just great. Okay, let's take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll entertain, I know we'll entertain, some questions from our audience at the live Zoom event at the Hill Center. During this holiday season, we salute America's labor unions, and especially those unions who are sponsors of the Bill Press Pod. So to our sponsors, the great hardworking men and women of the Laborers Union, the Teamsters, the United Food and Commercial Workers, the Smart Union, the Iron Workers, the American Federation of Teachers, and the Steel Workers, we say thank you. Thank you for fighting for American workers. Thank you for keeping America strong. And thank you for your support of the Bill Press Pod. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, we're back with Ina Garten, and here's our first question. Lisa wants to know, given what you usually have on hand, what dish do you gravitate toward? Well, for me, the simplest and most and really satisfying thing is to make a roast chicken with whatever vegetables I have around. So I just, you know, it's so such a simple thing. Butter, oil, uh, you know, salt and pepper, um, fill the cavity with lemon or thyme or garlic or whatever I have, and whatever vegetables go into the pan and it, it's into the oven. So you have a full meal that's um, just simple and delicious. By the way, of all the chicken recipes, my favorite is Jeffrey's chicken, I must say. Uh, <laughs> that's you know, good. Around the side and, uh, and the lemon and the garlic in the yeah. cavity. Yeah. I love that people call it Chicken Jeffrey. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's a real winner every time. Yeah. Thank uh, you. Denise would like to know, what are you making for your holiday meals? Oh, you know, well, usually we're in Paris for, for our hol- for for Christmas. So this is the first time in 20 years that we're here. So we're kind of figuring out what we're going to do. But I think thinking... Um, I don't know. I'll probably be testing a recipe on Jeffrey since it's just two of us. <laughs> really? Yeah. And I'm working on another book. So I'm thinking maybe like, uh, I don't know, a ham or um, I was playing around over Thanksgiving with a spatchcock turkey, which is great because it cooks in like an hour and 15 minutes. It's amazing. This is a question I, um, I'd rather not ask, but I will anyhow. Um, oh, uh-oh. <laughs> be loyal to um, one, one household that I know from California. And the question is, do you, do you agree that kale is the devil's food? Or, and also, what kale recipes are most likely to convert a kale naysayer? I, I have one. <laughs> you know, one of the things about kale is that it's very rough to eat. I mean, it's, it has to be very, very finely julienned in order to be able to actually eat it. Um, and actually, in this, in the book, Modern Comfort Food, I have a re- recipe that was inspired by a, um, a re- recipe of Jean-Georges von Gerichten, which is broccoli and kale with a Caesar dressing. And that just gives it so much flavor. So, and I think it might even have a poached egg on it. I think that would convert anybody. I mean, for me, put Caesar dressing on anything and I'm good to go. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll look it up okay. <laughs> for, for the kale recipe. You remember Bombay Club and it was there when you were at the White House. Yeah, uh, no, I don't remember it. I there recently and I had a, a crispy kale salad. And uh, as, Oh, that's great. As a non-kale lover, it was very good, I must admit. Yeah. I have crispy kale and, and, and uh, as a side dish in one of my books. Tanya would like to know who are your, I sort of asked this a little earlier, but who are your culinary inspirations and why? Well, it's, I'd say probably Julia Child more than anyone. 
um, because she really taught me how to cook. And she gave you the tools to know how to do something like making hollandaise sauce. And then she would say, but once you know how to do it and you understand how it works, here's how you can make it in a blender so it's really easy. So I think that was, um, she, it was a great education. It doesn't mean I cook French food all the time, but it was a great way to understand cuts of meat and how to prep vegetables and how to make sauces. Um, it's a great basis for anything. So I think probably Julia. Catherine would like to know, where do you start when creating new recipes? A finished idea? or just using whatever ingredients are available to you? What, when I'm starting a book, what I do is I sit down and, and I think of an idea for a book, and then I sit down and write <clears throat> maybe 50 or 100 ideas for recipes that would go in that category. And if I can come up with at least 50 ideas, then I know I have the basis for a book. So um, that's... I just, I. I really start with like remembered flavors or something I had. I've always got a list going. And then as time goes on and, you know, I'll get up in the morning and I'll come to the, the office, which is where I am right now. And I'll just look at the list and I'll go, oh, that sounds good. I think I'll make that today. And I'll get the ingredients and then just um, start cooking. And I'll work on it for a week or two weeks until I get it right. And then I'll go back to the list. And it kind of works out because... Um, over a period of two years, sometimes it's the summer and I feel like making a salad and sometimes it's the winter and I feel like making a soup. So each book has like all of the seasons included in it. But I usually start with an idea of a flavor and a, and a texture that I'm looking for in a particular recipe. Yeah, I particularly like the new book where you have breakfast, lunch, dinner. Yeah. Now, I do use the pantry because I might make a big pot of a lentil soup that I wanted to make and it's kind of missing something and I'm not quite sure what it is and I'll walk into the pantry or look in my refrigerator and I'll go oh I know it needs red wine vinegar so I I'm kind of inspired by what I have around the house well that's interesting so I had this question on my list of dumb questions I didn't get to it <laughs> uh, so it comes in from um, with all due respect from Steve uh, <laughs> <laughs> who's not dumb <laughs> And the question is, why do you call for extra large egg? Oh, that's so, a good question. Um, it's when I had the specialty food store, specialty food store, extra large eggs were more egg per, um, uh, it was better value. You got more egg per dollar for extra large eggs. And I continue to use them. And when I hired an assistant in, I don't know, 2000 or so, and she asked the same question about extra large eggs and she started using them, she said her baking got better because it had a little, yet a little more egg in it. So um, I just, I find them consistent and um, just seems to work. And if you have an, a large egg and you, and you want, and you don't, and you have a recipe for extra large eggs, somebody said, all you have to do is, um, a food stylist told me, all you have to do is add a yolk and you'll have an equivalent weight. Heather weighs in. Uh, Heather, question about eating out. Remember when we used to go out to restaurants? What's that? <laughs> uh, back in the days, and hopefully not too far in the distant future, if you want to see how good a restaurant is, what is the dish that you would always order? Two things. An omelet, because it's really hard to make right, and roast chicken. I think they're the simplest things, but they're the hardest to get right. What are you looking for in a good omelet? Um, that it's um, tender, that it's not overcooked, that it's kind of a little, very soft in the middle um, and perfectly folded. I, a friend of mine is... Um, <clears throat> 
is Eli Zabar, who has rest, restaurants and especially food stores in New York. And when he's testing a chef, he said he has, when he's um, uh, auditioning a chef to, to come work for him, he gives him three eggs and he says, make me an omelet. And he can tell from that um, omelet how he is. And then he said, and then I don't want to waste the three eggs, so I eat it for lunch, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> that is good. Um, from uh, Maggie. Maggie would like to know, besides knives, a good set of mm -hmm. sharp knives, what do you consider another essential kitchen tool? Um, you know what I use a lot of is sheet pans. They're called in the in the culinary world they're called half sheet pans but most cookware stores call them sheet pans they're um 12 by 18 and i have just a stack of them um on the counter um or on the stove and i um i make so many things in them i you know i can do roast chicken i can do roast vegetables i can make brownies i can make um tarts with rings i mean they're just they're completely useful all the time so I think that's really important. And then, you know, a set of good cookware. And, you know, if you're starting out and you don't have a lot of um, money, you can go to a, a restaurant supply store and get perfectly good cookware that restaurants buy. And, um, and as you get, you know, for Christmas or for a birthday, somebody can buy you a really good um, pot to replace them with. I really like all clad. I think they're just the best. I've, I have all clad that I've had for 40 years and it looks brand new, absolutely brand new. Do you do you use a I forget what they're called like a stick blender? You know that I, that's exactly what it's called. Yes, yeah. I do. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. I actually have um um a um a whole kit of like it's a um a mini blender that you know if I want to grind up a lot of garlic or something like that or nuts um, and it comes with a stick blender. I'm not sure that they make it anymore. There's, there's some companies that make it. Yeah, it's really useful. So you don't have to take the hot soup and put it into a blender exactly. and then pour it back again. You just put the stick blender in. We used to have a huge one at the store. It was oh. like the size of a small child. <laughs> but you know, when you used to have to use a blender like that, um, you could never get it all in at once, so you had to do it. In, in batches, and it's hot, and it's messy, and I highly recommend a sick blender. And actually, there are two things that I have in my kitchen that most people don't have, and I use them all the time, and they're very inexpensive. One is a ruler. When I take out a pan, I want to measure it to see if it's the 9-inch or the 8-inch pan. Oh, yeah. Um, and when I'm dicing something, I want to know whether it's a half-inch or 1-inch dice. Um, and the other thing is a small kitchen scale, and they're very inexpensive, but when I have a bag of something that's two pounds and I only need one pound, I want to make sure it's one pound. So I recommend those two things. Uh, okay. Do you have uh, both of them? Yes. Good for you. Not the ruler, but ruler's not <laughs> far away, but that's a good idea. But the small scale, for example, you call for 10 ounces of peas to be put yeah. in the ultimate beef stew at the end. So I weighed out the 10 ounces. Just That's great. Yeah. Eamon would like to know, you always call for good olive oil. Yeah. So not just any olive oil, right? Well, you know, I just, I write that because I want people to think about it, you know, not just chuck in whatever they have around. Um, I, I think the way I come up with what I think is good is I'll go to the store and I'll buy six of something, six different olive oils, six different mayonnaises. Um, I mean, recently I, I was, we always recommend lint chocolate and uh, for bittersweet chocolate because I think it's really good. And I thought, you know, I haven't really looked at that for, 10 years. So we went to the store and we got six different kinds of bittersweet chocolate and did a blind taste testing. And when you taste them all together, you really get exactly which one is, 
is the one that you like the best, which is what I'm talking about. And it turned out we like the lint best. So we kept doing what we're doing. But good olive oil can be anything. I mean, there's inexpensive olive oil that's perfectly fine, like Colavita. There's a very expensive olive oil, which I don't happen to like because it tends to have kind of like a turpentine kind of flavor. It has a very, uh, a little bit of a bitter flavor. I like California olive oil that has like a fresh kind of fruity flavor. Um, I use Olio Santo, which I like. And, I, and, and I'll say I never endorse products so I can tell everybody exactly what I like without them thinking I'm getting paid to do that. So that's, you can, you can buy that at Williams-Sonoma, always carries it. One of the things you strongly recommend is making your own stock. Yes, I think it's really important. It's night and day, absolutely night and day. I mean, what, if you make your own stock and then open a can and you taste them side by side, you'll know for sure you'll never buy the can again. I mean, sometimes if it's not important in the, in the flavor of the dish, maybe I can see using a can of it. But, um, and for things that like beef stock or turkey stock, you know, you're not gonna go out and buy a whole turkey to make the stock. Um, but I think chicken stock makes a huge difference, soups and stews and the depth of flavor, um, the, the, the herbs and the vegetables that you put in. And it's so easy to do. You put in three chickens into a big pot, fill it with water, with carrots and um, garlic and onions. And you don't even have to peel the onions. You just chop them up and put them in, chuck them in. And you let it cook for four hours. And the house smells great. And you've got five quarts of chicken stock to use forever. I saw that recipe. Maybe it's in this latest book. I um, have it in every book, actually. Okay. And what I was wondering is, what do you do with the chickens afterward? I mean, you didn't well, say carve up the chickens and you make a salad or anything. No, you don't, because all the flavor is in the stock. The chicken is really just not that flavorful anymore. It's kind of dry and tasteless. Really? So yeah. just throw it away. Yeah, just toss it out. Um, you give it to the cat. <laughs> cat won't mind. <laughs> Uh, Deborah would like to know, are capons the most flavorful chickens for roasting? Um, well, capons are bigger chickens, um, and I think it's great for the holidays. I have actually very often make it a capon for um, Christmas or New Year's or something like that. For Christmas, I think. Um, and I think they're, I mean, it depends on where you get them from. But yeah, I think capons are great if you can um, find them. Have you ever tried a recipe and intentionally left out an ingredient that you don't like? I should say, other than cilantro. <laughs> Intentionally? I mean, I, I mean, I've certainly tried recipes. I mean, other people's recipes that I'm making for myself. Yeah. I'm trying to think if I've intentionally left something out. I, probably not if, if I, unless it's something I don't like. And there's very, very little that I, I wouldn't try the recipe if there was something in there that I really didn't like. Gail has a suggestion, or maybe it's a, in terms of, of a question. Could yeah. your shows include how you entertain as well as cooking? You thought about that? Or? Oh, I think I do. I, I think I've, um, I did for many, many years. We did, um, we had parties actually at the end of the show. So I would do table settings and flowers. And I think the older shows, in fact, um, you know, Food Network was bought by Discovery and they are just launching something called Discovery Plus, which is a, um, a platform like Disney Plus or HBO Max 
and um, they're going to have all the shows on it. So you can go back to the old shows. And I have a lot of information about how I give cocktail parties and how to set up a bar, how to um, set a table, how to do flowers. It's more than just cooking. So, yeah, it's all there. Okay. Um, just a few more questions here because you've been very generous with your time. And, I'm uh, totally happy. To, uh, totally happy. I'd love to hear what people, what questions people have. Joan says, uh, "This I'm curious about this myself. Do you sous vide any recipes? And if so, what do you like to cook with that method? Um, I I don't. You know, one of the things I I actually don't do is I don't buy any equipment that people." across America don't have. So sous vide is a very specific thing that's used in restaurants a lot. Um, I don't tend to like the texture of things from sous vide. I think they're, they're almost too tender. They don't have enough um, bite to them. Mm -hmm. And um, I think generally things are sous vide and then later cooked off, you know, browned and done like that. So I, I tend not to, to sous vide things, but um, I'd be curious if they had a good, Good experience with it. Do you have any favorite dish from your childhood that you've elevated? Well, actually, the classic thing is on the cover of my book, which is um, tomato soup and a grilled cheese sandwich, which <laughs> is totally classic, right? And uh, but you know, I added a little saffron to the tomato soup. I made it really simple to make, and I add, I do really good cheddar and chutney in the. Um, uh, grilled cheese sandwich, and I, and I do it in a panini press, so it's really easy to make. I think that's the classic. You know, I, I tell the story in the beginning of the book that when my production company was here, and they're all from London, um, I was telling them that we were talking about what we used to eat when we were kids, and I was like, well, you know, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And they were like, oh, that's disgusting. I'm like, no, they're not. And, and I said, what, what do you used to have when you were kids? And they said, oh, we used to have sandwiches that were made with Heinz baked beans out of the can and a slice of Kraft Singles on white bread. And I'm like, ooh. <laughs> so a lot depends on where you came from and what you what you had when you were a kid. Yeah, I, like <laughs> I would find that pretty disgusting. Um, <laughs> Michelle would Thanks. like to know, what is your go-to dessert for a dinner party? Oh, um, there's so many. It's, that's a tough tough choice. But you know what I tend to like is I like to make panna cotta because it's fairly easy to put together. It's um, a custard, an Italian custard, um, and it sits in the refrigerator overnight. So whenever I'm ready to serve dessert, it's ready. And you can make all kinds of variations of it. Sometimes I make a vanilla panna cotta with a, um, a drizzle of um, warm caramel on the top. Um, sometimes I make a um, uh, panna cotta with um, framboise and serve a fresh raspberry sauce on top. So they're all, you know, once you're comfortable with the recipe, you can make all different kinds of variations. And I tend to do that a lot. And also, I, I love bread puddings. I think they have great flavor in the winter. It's nice to have a bread pudding. Uh, so a quick, a quick story. A friend of ours who lives on the hill, his aunt, was Simon Beck. He's the nephew. Oh, no kidding. Right. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and his partner, had a, they were having a dinner party one night, and, and Jean-Francois was out with his aunt with Simon Beck somewhere else. And whatever happened, they came back early, and she came, showed up. So here's John Max, who's suddenly cooking for Simon Beck. <laughs> That's <laughs> frightening. It comes, it comes dessert time, and he served this dessert, which she said was the best thing she had ever had in her life. What was it? It was a can of frozen pears with heavy syrup, and this is his go-to dessert that he keeps in the freezer, and then he'll take it out at the beginning of the meal and then blend it 
and put some poire will yum on it. And it's like a um, little sorbet, pear sorbet, out of the, basically. Out. And she <laughs> loved it. And she actually put it in her next cookbook. Oh, how fabulous. It might be in mine. <laughs> That's great. Made me think of that. Do you have any favorite vegetarian meals? Absolutely. Um, you know what I like to make? Because when, when I have friends come for, for dinner, which has been a while, but when I have friends come for dinner, um, I never like to make something different for somebody who doesn't eat what everybody else is eating. So if I have somebody who's vegetarian, I like to make something that's substantial enough that they can eat it. Um, I love to make like um, polenta, like a just big puddle of polenta and then roast vegetables on top. And I just think, find it substantial enough and everybody's very happy with that. Can you develop... Uh-oh. <laughs> and- <laughs> Ann Thomas would like to know, she's putting you to work here, uh, Ina. Uh-oh. Could you develop a recipe for a chiffon pie? <laughs> a lot of people say to me, my grandmother used to make this great chiffon pie, or they make some, like, uh, whatever it is. <laughs> I need a little more information, Ann. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> how are you staying connected, Ann, also, how are you staying connected with loved ones in 2020? Well, you know, in the beginning when there was a lockdown and we were just like wondering how we were going to get through this, um, we were kind of doing Zoom cocktails with people. But then you realize that it's that in-person thing that really makes you feel good. Like being with someone is different. And we, we've come to appreciate that much more than we ever did. And so um, in May, I went to the hardware store that they have gorgeous outdoor furniture, and I bought a huge coffee table and set up chairs on both sides that were six feet apart. I, I bought heaters, um, outdoor heaters, uh, so we could sit at this big, long table so we could invite two people on, at one side and two people on the other. And actually, I even got sheepskin um, sheepskins to put on the seats, so when it's cold, <laughs> it, it's really warm on the seats. Yeah. And um, little cashmere blankets for everybody. And, and we, you know, it... And, down to about 40 degrees, we're okay. <laughs> you could do it in Washington. It's getting a little cold here for, the, for it now, but we really lasted for a long time. So yeah, we're very, very careful, but we, I just need to see, see my friends. So that's what we do. Do you, uh, Eileen is asking, do you miss the store? Um, I love the store. I did it for almost 20 years, um, and it was a great basis for writing cookbooks. Um, but I don't, I don't miss that. I don't miss getting up at five in the morning, and I don't miss the, the phone call when they say, oh, the baker's sick, and can you come in and make, make a thousand baguettes? I don't miss that at all. <laughs> so it was fun. We, we had a really good time, but I love writing cookbooks. Right. Well, it's so great to join you tonight. And well, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Um, I guess the final question is, what's for dinner tonight, Ina? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Jeffrey's ordering out. Oh. <laughs> that's a good husband. <laughs> that's also a good practice to help our restaurants at, during this exactly. time. Exactly. Exactly. I really. Well, I hope the beef stew is is as ultimate as I I want it to be. <laughs> uh, I know that it will. So we thank you. Thank you, Bill. And that's it for our conversation with Ina Garten, the Barefoot Contessa. Again, her new book, Modern Comfort Food. Go out and get a copy. You will love it, and you'll enjoy many great meals out of it. And that's it for today. Thanks so much for joining us for this replay of our conversation from the Hill Center. We'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Meanwhile, stay strong, stay safe, stay warm. Happy holidays. Happy holidays.